Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our Saturday broadcast. Been away for the past two weeks, but back now. So for the present moment for today, we're here, which is good because we don't know whether death might come even tomorrow. So good that we take the opportunity we have today to do something of value. So to start off, the most valuable thing, we will spend 15 minutes in silent meditation. It's um, mainly for the purpose of giving time for people to ask questions, to join and allow time to get a good list of questions to answer. But incidentally, of course, it encourages all participants to do what is really important, what we're here to learn about and to become more skilled in. So for the first 15 minutes, we will have silent meditation. You can do walking or sitting or walking and sitting, lying, as long as you are cultivating mindfulness. At quarter after the hour, we will come back and start to answer questions.
All right, we're back. So uh, from here, here on, we'd ask that the only thing that you post in chat are our actual questions. Anything else we'll try to remove just to keep it clean and focused. If you have a question, post at any time. If you don't have a question, just sit back and stay mindful. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. My dog died. How do I get over the grief and sorrow? Hmm. It's uh, one of the perennial great questions. Well, with mindfulness, of course, the Buddha said, Soka paridewa nang samatika maya, that the direct way, maybe even you could say the only way to overcome grief and sorrow is the four satipatthana. Why it works that way, why we can say even like the only way is because of the nature of grief. Grief involves the discrepancy between what you get and what you want. So, on the one hand, it involves getting. If you could always get what you want, then you would never theoretically have grief or sorrow. But it also involves wanting. So, if you never had wanting, you would likewise never have grief or sorrow. So wanting turns out to be the root of uh, grief and sorrow um, with a note that it can also involve uh, getting what you don't want, so the aversion towards things. It involves a partiality Maybe you get something that you don't want. You can have grief and sorrow because of things uh, that you do get that cause you grief and sorrow. But in a sense, it's still not getting what you want. You want something to go away. It doesn't go away. You want something to cease. It doesn't cease. You want to be free from something. You can't be free from it. Um, and the nature of wanting... The nature of partiality is in relation to experience. So you have an experience, and then you like it or you dislike it. You judge it. Maybe, for example, with your dog, you have a memory of the dog, and then you like that memory, and you want to... Um, to get more of the uh, of the associated experiences like you have a memory of playing with your dog and then you like that and you think oh i'll go play with my dog the the yearning for playing with your dog or petting your dog or cuddling with your dog or experiencing the sights and sounds and so on associated with your dog that wanting arises the the attachment to it the yearning and because the dog is dead, that's not really going to happen. So you can't get what you want. See? But it happens uh, experientially. Like we can, we can describe it um, conceptually as, oh, I want, I miss my dog. We could say, I miss my dog. But that doesn't capture the essence of what's happening. That's not very precise. I miss my dog. It's it's the standard explanation of what's happening. But it's imprecise. And so mindfulness provides a different level of precision and accuracy. In, in mindfulness, you're working with the actual moments of experience when you visualize your dog or you hear the sound in your mind of its bark or you 
remember something arises in the mind something arises in your experience maybe not just in the mind you hear another dog bark or you see another dog and that reminds you of your dog but this is happening on an experiential level so the first reason why mindfulness uh, works is because it's dealing with what's actually happening if you talk about missing your dog then you can people can give you all these platitudes philosophical advice um People can tell you to get over it, which obviously isn't some magical, there's no magical way to do that. But mindfulness actually deals with reality. So it actually has a chance to work. It's like if your car breaks down and someone you know kicks the tire and says, try it now, or they wave a magic wand over it, or they, they shout at the car, won't you know, work, damn you. None of that is is effectual because it has no bearing on reality. So, so mindfulness works with reality. But not only does it work with reality, it's the way it works with reality. Mindfulness is an alternative to, experience, to um, our engagement with experience. So instead of liking or disliking, mindfulness provides you with an alternative at the moment of receiving the experience. So it teaches you a means of experiencing things just as they are. The Buddha re- reiterated this in various ways. There's one very famous one where he said, let seeing just be seeing. But you can see it in the Satipatthana Sutta as well, in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, where he says when one is walking, the training is to just know that you're walking. And you think, well, that's kind of silly. Of course I know that I'm walking. What's the point? The point is to cultivate this ability to experience things just as they are. That's what the word sati means. It doesn't really mean mindfulness. The word that we translate as mindfulness actually means remembrance. And the impl- the the um, the reason for the use of the word remembrance is uh, to express this idea of not sliding away or losing track of the actual experience so in other words seeing it just as it is remembering seeing is just seeing because you can describe the ordinary interaction with reality as forgetting you lose track of it you you have pain for example and your mind doesn't stay with the pain it moves on to how can i get rid of the pain this pain is terrible who caused this pain any number of things and it's making more of it than it actually is. And one way of describing the simple, um, direct, objective experience of things just as they are is as remembering. So the means of cultivating that is therefore to remind yourself. And so the long answer for what I could have probably just very practically explained to you, but I think it's useful because we have a wide audience here and, and there's people who watch these videos afterwards perhaps um, to to give a general idea of, of uh, what we're talking about really and what really can help. And so the simple answer is just to say to yourself, sad, sad, and learn how to um, recognize and remember experiences just as they are including memories of your dog when you think of your dog when you when you see your dog in your mind or when you uh, feel happy remembering uh, past experiences when you like those past experiences when you want to spend time with your dog you can actually see those as well as being a precursor for the sadness and the grief and that's really what it comes down to. It's we have addictions to even people, and and of course by extension, domesticated animals. Um, and it it really is just because of our our attachment to them. We think of liking things as being a good thing, but it really only leads to this uh, tension where when we get what we want, we're happy, but we become more and more increasingly dependent upon those things for our happiness so our happiness becomes dependent on specific experiences one of the words the buddha uses is anisito juviharati one dwells independent it's a good word to remember um, that true happiness 
can really only logically be independent because as long as you're dependent on something, it, it logically goes to, um, it logically follows that you're, well, not always going to get what you want. You're going to be wanting. I don't know if you've read our booklet, but that might help. It gives some basic instruction. You can try doing our at-home course if you think that is something you could get into. It certainly should help very, very effectively. If I am happy, I note happy and the sensations that arise, but I can't see or note dukkha in those moments. Thus, is dukkha just a concept and not real? Dukkha, the word dukkha means you suffer if you cling to it. That's really probably the, the, the best way to understand what is meant there. Dukkha is um, a way of describing everything. Everything, ha everything is dukkha, and what that means is that it can't satisfy you. It, it, only, it, it has um, painful um, touch, in a sense. It's if effect on you its affect on you will be painful, not because you experience it, but because you uh, you decide on it. So it's like when you go into a store and or into a, a grocery store and you look at all the food and you um, you see that some food is unhealthy. So if you look at all the food in the store and you say, oh, this is unhealthy food or that is unhealthy food, and someone might look at the food and say, well, that food looks healthy to me. I mean, it looks like it's not sick or anything. The food isn't sick. But no, what you mean by that is the food it causes you sickness. The food is, is bad for you. There's nothing wrong with the food. Like um, uh, butter, for example. There's nothing wrong with butter. But if you eat a lot of butter, you'll get sick. You'll 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 well you'll you'll get heart disease and so on. Or sugar, sugar is actually quite beautiful. It's crystals, right? Sugar sugar is a uh, I think well forms crystals anyway, right? So what's wrong with that? Oh no, sugar is is unhealthy. That sugar doesn't look unhealthy to me. But it's it's dukkha is the same. There's nothing wrong with things intrinsically but they intrinsically have the nature of like in a sense being unhealthy for you so it only it isn't because you it not and it, so it's not quite like food because it's not because you experience them it's not because you experience things it's um by their very nature they uh They aren't amenable. They're, they're, there's a negativity to them. Like there's, it's it's basically the, the, the. I'm trying to get very close to to something without without you know being too descriptive, just to directly call something suffering. It's um, uh, the your your relationship with them is. Um, is is meaningless is unbeneficial I mean unbeneficial not doesn't mean harmful per se but unbeneficial meaning getting those things is not what you think and another way to understand these things to, to appreciate and um, get the right idea about these things is to understand that all three of the characteristics are negative anichang what that means really isn't so much about a philosophical idea of things being being uh, things changing or being not per being uh, yeah well changing. It's realizing about the things that you thought were stable and permanent that they aren't that. Because and, and why why we can say that is because the point of the three characteristics is that they cause you to let go of the things that you were clinging to. You don't have to go out of your way to find things and realize that they are uh, impermanent suffering and non-self. What 
comes from the practice is a realize a gradual realization um repeatedly repeated and systematic you know again and again seeing that the things that you thought were stable satisfying and controllable and self and all that are not that so it's the letting go realizing that the things you thought were sukha are not actually sukha that's all it really means it doesn't mean oh this happiness is painful or 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 awful it just means the happiness has no benefit to you it has no value and furthermore um is the kind of thing that when you choose it when you uh, incline towards it in other words when you like it or want it it leads to stress and suffering it's it's a, it's not so simple like it's not easy to just ex- give you an answer in a few words it is suffering is something you you you're best to talk a bit about and describe the various kinds of suffering like there's books written on the subject but at the very very basic in a very, in the simplest way it's just that uh it's it's unbeneficial it hasn't it has no benefit to you and it's not the kind of thing that you should cling to all dhammas are not worth clinging to the buddha said that's enough you understand that you understand the right theory that's the whole point is nothing is worth clinging to and so the three characteristics are the 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 things that you see that cause you to let go of the things that you previously held on to like happiness we cling to happiness seeing i mean really it comes it it relates to your question because probably in your mind there's some idea that this happiness is good for me i mean this is a good thing right it's good to feel happiness uh, when in fact it's actually not good to feel happiness happy doesn't happiness doesn't lead to more future happiness it doesn't make you a happier person in general it doesn't lead to a health a, a greater mental health happiness doesn't have that ability goodness has that sort of ability goodness and happiness are are of course two different things and it's goodness that leads to happiness and peace and and all all good things but happiness doesn't do that happiness has no benefit so clinging to the happiness isn't going to help you i mean that no it's not that it's not just going to help clinging to the happiness will will lead to that very suffering that you're looking at you're thinking of When thinking doesn't stop for a long time, should I go back to the stomach or stay with thinking all the time? If you're thinking a lot, say distracted, distracted, try and note the state of mind of not being focused. Um, If you're thinking a lot, you might try lying down, like if it's really overwhelming and you say distracted, distracted, and your mind doesn't focus at all, you can try lying down. On the other hand, you can just go back to the rising and falling for a bit. It's the kind of um, temporary problem or beginner problem that, or it's not quite beginner problem. It's the problem that one would generally have when their the things they do in their life are, are have not been conducive towards mindfulness. So, conducive towards a lot of thinking. If you have a a job that involves a lot of mental activity, or if you engage. In a lot of reading, for example, reading can cause uh, a lot of thinking. How to balance concentration and effort? Well, there's different levels to answering that. The first level is on on a sort of practical level worldly level maybe i don't know what the right word is of a mundane level maybe uh so there's 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 conceptual things you can do that don't have anything to do with the actual uh, nitty-gritty of my of mindfulness practice for example uh, i mean first and foremost change your lifestyle that uh, that may not be necessarily everyone's problem but it 
can often be the cause you would attribute um, an imbalance in the faculties to. For example, someone who is very focused in the things they do, maybe staring at a computer screen or watching television a lot, can become very concentrated. Um, on the other hand, someone who does, again, a lot of mental act work that requires a lot of mental activity, um, programming or reading or writing or typing or talking, uh, conversation and texting and those sorts of things, uh, lots of different things that lead to restlessness in the mind. Uh, so making some effort to change your lifestyle. To be honest, I don't think it's that big of a deal. One of the great things about mindfulness practice is it inclines you to change your lifestyle. So usually the best recommendation is to just encourage people to practice mindfulness and they'll start to see how it rubs up against their lifestyle and lifestyle will start to change or or it'll be it'll be clear where it should change as a result of the practice of mindfulness uh on on a more uh momentary level or on a more in, occasional level incidental level um during your practice, for example, you there are ways in which you can um, adjust things like concentration and effort. And one of the biggest ones is changing your posture. If you are are over concentrated or, or have little effort, and you're doing sitting meditation, you can get up and do standing meditation or even walking meditation. That's why we do walking first and then sitting, or we do them together is uh, to balance, help balance the faculties. Or it's one of the big reasons. On the other hand, if you have over uh, amount, uh, over, over emphasis on effort and your concentration is lacking when you're doing walking or standing or even sitting, then you can switch the other way. If you're standing or walking, look, sit down and do sitting meditation. Or if you're sitting, again, lie down and do lying meditation. Um, but ultimately, with all the faculties, the the be-all, end-all of, of balancing them is the fifth faculty, which is mindfulness. Mindfulness doesn't have anything that it has to balance with. Mindfulness is always valuable. And the, the, the better and more stronger your mindfulness is, uh, the better. There's no need to balance it. it. It is the balancing faculty, the coordinating faculty. It grows and stabilizes all of the other faculties. So if you're drowsy, for example, as a result of having little effort, you would note tired, tired or drowsy. If you're restless, you would note restless, restless or anxious, anxious. And moreover, simply the cultivation of mindfulness leads to less imbalance, less activity mentally and even physically and verbally that is going to encourage and aggravate the imbalance. How can I return to the practice? I had broken a two-year-long habit of meditation of about an hour or two, but now I have not meditated consistently for over seven months. Any advice? I stay mindful at times. Just start. I'm telling you, um, the best thing you can do is just start. There's no magic pill. You just start. Just do it. And then later on, you do it again. Uh, one thing about schedules is they can become a little bit conceptual. And um, well, I mean, they are a concept, but um, it, it makes your practice a little bit conceptual like doing it at certain times. Mindfulness is about moments, so staying mindful at times is already great. It's a, already a wonderful thing. But uh, really, just do it, and then forget about that one, and, and again, do it when you, when you think of it, do it again. And always be doing it uh, now. Like, uh, when, when, when am I doing it today? This morning, this afternoon? 
don't think about the yesterday or tomorrow I did it or didn't do it or that sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I think schedules are actually valuable, but they shouldn't um, take precedence. Once you have that schedule, that can be quite helpful, but it doesn't. It isn't a um, replacement for the actual um, get up and go that you need in the moment to do it now. To do it uh, when you have the the opportunity. I mean, that's not. A, I'm not giving you a magical solution either, because just me saying this isn't likely to. Uh, magically make your practice work but you coming to ask the question and talking and listening to people talk about doing practice can can be helpful so the only real uh, substantial solution that that you could change is to find a community and the closer you are in touch with other people who are meditating this is the one thing the buddha said that is going to always always be uh, a support and maybe even a necessary support for for real and and meaningful progress is to have contact with others who are on the path which you are doing right now so having contact with all of us that's a good thing you could join our discord server that's sometimes a good thing there's good things that happen there and we're also talking about this uh mentorship program i think we have a meeting tomorrow morning at 8 a.m uh, and it's just a means to sort of encourage local uh, organization encourage people to do something in their area simply because of this sort of thing that uh, it's hard to practice without uh, a community and so this is a way to extend our community and help and support people who are creating community in their area and encourage people to do that sort of thing so you might think about doing something like that and coming to the meeting and talking to us about it i am slowly letting go of media filled with sex violence and high sensual desires but whenever I come across it again, my mind becomes turbulent. Am I doing something wrong? Well, technically, we're all uh, we, we're all doing wrong things until enlightenment. So, so yes, technically, but practically, it's par for the course. As long as you're still living in lay life you're still going to come across these things and they're still going to affect you until you uh, take the time to uh, do some mental cleansing, some scrubbing, get in there and, and really go over these things again and again until you understand them a little bit better. The understanding can take a long time especially if you're not doing intensive practice. It can take lifetimes. But uh, ideally, you would take the time to find a way to do intensive practice and really work at these things. That would, that would be more right than the way most, mostly it, practice is undertaken, which is a more casual... Um, occasional thing but when it's casual or occasional of course the results are going to be exponentially slower awareness during meditation allows us to notice the rising of thoughts and letting them go of course by thoughts i also mean emotions perceptions and sensations is that the purpose of practice maybe sort of i mean you're you're missing a bit there um it's not quite so simple because we notice the we notice thoughts 
um, and we notice experiences. But mindfulness is about grasping them firmly. That's what makes it different from ordinary noticing and ordinary awareness as well. Awareness isn't really the best word to use to describe uh, practice. It's a type of awareness, but it's a firm uh, it's a firm recognition of the experience just as it is. There's this word tirasanya, which is what gives rise to the state of mind of sati. Tira meaning strong. There's a strong sanya, a strong perception, a strong recognition of the object. This is this. And that doesn't allow us to let go. That allows us to see uh, things clearly, which prevents the arising of perceptions of stability, satisfaction, or control, and therefore prevents the clinging, um, and also indirectly changes the habits away from clinging. It, it cultivates a, a, a new habit, a better habit, a better way of interacting with reality, and that is, it is what it is, this is what it is, uh, and not seeing things as worth clinging to. And as a result of that, there arises uh, such clarity that the mind just lets go. It takes time, and it's a pro process. I still control my abdomen rising and falling, with my muscles pulling it in and pushing out. Also, it is uncomfortable. Does it get more smooth with time? Yeah, this is a common one, and there's a few things here that you have to look at. Uh, let's start from the end, not for any reason, but um, does it get more smooth with time implies a desire for something to be smooth and probably an aversion towards it being not smooth, an aversion towards the discomfort. The other important thing here is the perception of control, which is conceptual. It's not actually what's happening. There is a stress involved, which leads to the tension. We, we call that control. I'm trying to control or whatever. And okay, trying to control is more accurate, but not actually controlling. It's just stressing. It's brain activity and um, causes tension in the body, tension in the stomach, and so on. So what you do is you note the tension, you note the discomfort, you note the disliking, you note the wanting or, or uh, worrying about the fact that it's not getting uh, comfortable. The idea that you want it to get comfort comfortable. And you note when things are comfortable, your liking of that, because that's ultimately what the sort of thing that's going to lead you to be displeased or dissatisfied when it's not like that. So you note the liking when things are pleasant. This is um, the, 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 the final thing to say and the most important thing is that this is what you expect from the practice. This, is, this question shows the discrepancy between what we think reality is like and what it actually is like. Welcome to reality. Um, what you're experiencing is not the problem. The problem is, as you can see, or what you can see in your reactions, your judgments, your liking and disliking, your expectations, your hopes, your wishes for it to be other than what it is. But what you're experiencing is, is a, a shocking truth about reality, that it is unpredictable, it is um, un, unsatisfying, uncontrollable, it is not smooth, reality is not smooth. Uh, any experience you might have of smoothness is itself unpredictable and inconstant and impermanent. And clinging to it will only lead to dissatisfaction. So don't be discouraged. Um, try and use this as the opportunity that it is to 
learn about what is the real problem, and that is the expectation, the craving, the aversion, the kind of laziness. We're kind of lazy in the sense that we wish everything could be easy. Oh, if only it were smooth, which is really just saying if only it were simple and easy and I didn't have to uh, adapt and I didn't have to keep up with this unpredictable, un, uh, uncomfortable nature. Aber plays extremely loud music often. The authorities have been involved, but it persists. It prevents meditation due to its severity. I fear talking to him. What is a Buddhist to do? Well, it doesn't prevent meditation. There's no such thing as severe... I mean, unless it's causing your ears to literally bleed or making you go deaf, that... Uh, if it's that loud, well, that's, uh, I don't think it doesn't sound, I hope it's not that loud. Um, you just note it, just note hearing, hearing. It's, um, and you can note lots of different things. You can note your, of course, your, li your disliking of it. You can also note any, any effect it might have on your meditation, like um, the rhythm or so on. Uh, influencing your step it's not getting in the way of your meditation it's it's a meditation object it's something you can take as a meditation object when i was in uh, thailand the um the monastery we were at was converted into a meditation center but it was right in the middle of town uh, uh, a small size well medium well it was small when we went when we got there it grew over time but i guess a medium-sized town in northern Thailand, and uh, the reason it was the reason for it is because uh, my teacher, our, our teacher, became very famous, and he was at a forest monastery that, to this day, is still a great place. But they moved him to a more meaningful, a more uh, prestigious monastery. But the thing about these prestigious monasteries is most of them are in not very meditative spots. So, long story short. Uh, every year there was a carnival, and they had always used the monastery grounds for it. So they just continued to use the monastery grounds. Now the meditation center was behind the monastery, but they had towers of loudspeakers, like it was a stage with like a concert. And all day and all night they were they were blasting. Uh, I don't know what you call it, dance music, techno music. I don't know what it's called, this sort of electronic beat with uh, pop lyrics or so on. And we thought we couldn't meditate. It was just so loud at a meditation center. But we were told to meditate through it, and meditate through it we did. Right? It uh, Just as a bit of reassurance that you're not the only one who goes through these things. and experience teaches you things it's a it gives you an opportunity this gives you an opportunity to learn about yourself that's what i would take it as what basic teaching of buddhism is recommended to know for practicing vipassana meditation well i already mentioned it if i'm going to answer this succinctly i would say sabe dhamma nalanga biniwe saya no dhamma is worth, nothing is worth clinging to. That's uh, the basic teaching. Maybe also uh, knowledge of basic ethics, the five precepts, even the eight precepts. Read our booklet. Uh, booklet sort of gives basic teachings. I suffer from the thought that at any point in time there is immeasurable suffering being experienced by humans and animals. I understand it's a thought, but the suffering is true. How to reconcile? Well, you don't suffer from thoughts. You suffer from your reactions to the thoughts. So you feel sad or upset, and that's on you. That's nothing to do with the actual thought. Uh, 
suffering is true, but that's not the problem. You oh maybe except yeah I think their suffering is true, but that doesn't need to lead to your suffering. Your suffering is because of your own reaction to it. Mindfulness will help with that. Are there some drawbacks of using a mantra in vipassana meditation? Nope. Well, if it's not, if it's the right mantra. No, no drawbacks. What I mean is that if it's a vipassana mantra, if it's a mantra that actually describes ultimate reality, then there's no drawbacks. But the drawbacks would be in using a conceptual object, a conceptual a word for a conceptual object like dog, dog, or um, someone actually, I know someone who had real trouble and actually had a psychotic episode. Uh, I mean, she was wound very tightly. It was It was not because of the practice, but... She started saying things like wisdom, wisdom. Uh, I don't remember all, but I remember the word wisdom. She kept saying that, and she thought she was actually being mindful. There's no meaning in that. I didn't apologize to someone for reacting angrily to them because I didn't want to encourage their original and more egregious wrong. Does that sound reasonable? Things seem to have blown over anyway. You should apologize when it seems appropriate. Uh, apologizing doesn't fix thing, fix everything, and it's not a necessary thing to do. Sometimes I think it's good to, in certain cases where it wouldn't seem right to apologize to an individual, you can apologize in your mind. You can include them in your daily prayers, one might say. Like, we don't pray to God, but you could think of it as a prayer where you say, uh, may that person forgive me. I forgive them. May they forgive me. Include them in your daily reflections, I guess. Daily determinations. I have been struggling with doubt during meditation for many months, to the extent that I doubt I am doubting, and don't know what I am feeling at some times. Would you have any advice? Um, you don't have to struggle with it. I guess that's it. Just note it. If you're struggling with it, that means you're reacting to it. You're upset about it. Maybe you dislike it or you're frustrated or you're worried about it or afraid of it. But uh, you really should just note it. When the rising and falling feels forced, should I say feeling and focus on the physical feeling or should I say knowing and focus on the mental awareness of it feeling forced? Or are both fine? I would note feeling. Feeling or and, and note your reactions if you dislike it or you're frustrated. Yeah. It doesn't feel forced, it feels tense, right? Forced is just our interpretation of it. it feels tense or uncomfortable, and you can note either of those. Since I started with meditation, I can feel other people's energy, but they can't feel bad vibes as strongly as me, etc. Why can't they, and why do I become sensitive to other people's energies? Yeah, those aren't really very very important questions. I mean, it's okay that you ask this, but my answer would be to, to focus more on your experiences. You don't feel energy, you feel experiences. You experience things and you perceive that as being because of other people's emotions, let's say. People don't have energy, they have emotions, or, or they have states of mind, let's say. Uh, but I'm not saying you're wrong, I'm just saying whatever the truth of that is, it's still just an interpretation. Even if it's even if your interpretation is correct and valid, whether it's valid or, or not, it's still an interpretation. It's not the actual experience. Your experience is not of other people's energy. That's not a thing that we can feel. We feel experiences. We feel sensations. We also, in English, we would say feel emotions, but we try to distinguish those. That's a different kind of feel. It's a, you experience liking or disliking, worry, fear, that sort of thing. But that's that's yours in a sense. I mean, it's not 
it isn't coming from someone else, even though that may be the cause, or that may be a, a proxima, an indirect cause. So we're only focused on the actual experiences. Try to distinguish that. It'll be more accurate and less of a narrative where I can feel people. Even the sentence, I can feel other people's energy, is there's too much baggage there. That's not actually what's happening. First of all, because there's no I who can do anything. There is an experience that arises, and that experience arises and ceases, and that experience is not connected to a person. It's an experience that you, quote-unquote, you have. And you should just be noting that. As for why other people can or can't do so, I mean, this, these are questions are just far away from our uh, what we teach. So I'm not, I'm not saying you're. It's it's against what we teach or anything. It's just it's unrelated to mindfulness. So why things happen is not very interesting. We're just trying to look at them so that we change our our relationship with them and our reactions are peaceful and non-judgmental. Dante, we've crossed the hour and uh, I've asked all the questions in the first tier. Okay, thank you everyone for the questions. Wish you all the best. Sadhu. Sadhu. Thank you, Chris, and Edit, for your help. Of course.